Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. This is Jeff Krasno. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Tony Riddle. To say that Tony is an ultra-endurance athlete just might be the understatement of the year. You will soon hear about his unfathomable accomplishments. He is also a natural lifestyle coach, speaker, retreat leader, and author of the new best-selling book, Be More Human, How to Transform Your Lifestyle for Optimal Health, Happiness, and Vitality. Now, in our conversation, Tony and I explore the ways that our rapidly evolving culture has become maladaptive for human thriving. We discuss how our myriad creature comforts are actually contributing to chronic disease and pain. Tony outlines the gradual process of rewilding our lives, of reconnecting to ways of living that are more in sync with human biology. We discuss how a healthy diet, meditation, conscious breathing, nature immersion, cold water therapy, going barefoot, squatting, and other modalities can relink us with our basic human nature and a life of thriving, not just surviving. Now you can check out our Rewilding Human Movement course with Tony and enjoy all of our health and functional medicine courses for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And if you enjoy this show, please support us by subscribing and leaving us a review on your favorite podcatcher. So without further delay, I present to you, Tony Riddle. Tony Riddle, great to be with you. Great to be here, man. Yeah, congratulations on your new book. I know you have four children. Maybe this is considered the fifth, but uh, Be More Human is really incredibly successful in a very short period of time. So well done. It's taken a bit of birthing, that one. 
Yeah, so talking of children, so my third child, Tallulah, is now six. And the seed kind of was planted for this book um, the moment she was born, really. I was holding a men's retreat at this space called 42 Acres. It's near where we live in Somerset. And yeah. um, I think you know Seth, right? You know the guys. There. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, it was like the early days. So I held the very first retreat at 42 Acres. I was on the board at 42 Acres. And they're good friends of mine. had this amazing relationship. And I said, I'd like to do a men's retreat. Like, yeah, okay, go ahead. Let's do it. And it meant using the land so we could take these guys out and build shelters with survival experts on the land. And it wasn't just so much about being on retreat. It was about putting all these kind of practices in place. And there was cold immersion and breath and natural movement. And and some of the guys exhausted at the practice of building shelter outside and how enormous nature felt to them. So two didn't make it. They had to go back to the house. They couldn't actually stay out that night. It was just too intense, right? So that gives you some idea about what it was like as a practice. And then... I arrived home and within three days, my daughter Tallulah was born, but there was no midwife. The midwives were running late and it was a home birth. So there's the three um, two daughters, Lola and Millie were there at that time observing. I catch Tallulah, have my Lion King moment holding Tallulah up like, wow, it's amazing and hand her to Katerina. And then three days later, back at 42 acres holding a retreat for journalists but oh, wow. i just had this massive rite of passage men's retreat and then a more i would say the most profound rite of passage midweek with Tallulah coming into the world and then to arrive back and be presented with these journalists and influencers holding <laughs> space i was completely <laughs> smashed open so I just said, look, we're just going to have dinner together tonight. And then we start the retreat tomorrow morning. So I made them dinner and we all sat around. And we were just, it was like, well, Tony, how did you get to where you are? And how is it that we've reached this point? And it was an opportunity to tell my story rather than it be a retreat that centered around practices and the science behind this stuff and why we're doing it. This was our oh, Tony's story. And it went right back and we had a whole evening together and almost in chorus, Jeff, you heard the, you should write a book. And so it came in there and then I spent probably four days with different journalists with them coming up to me like, I'll help you write your book, you know, I'll help you write your book. And it kind of, this was the, the rhythm of things or the echo that was felt over the weekend. So that's where it came in and, and it's been really on off on off on off it's happening it's not happening with a publisher not with a publisher oh the publisher didn't know this one's not interest oh you need a larger following and and it's and you know what i think having the practices that i i adopt that are in the book has helped me stay patient within that process you know determined within the process and has now got yeah and now birthed that book you know yeah well, that acorn has obviously grown into a beautiful oak tree. Oh, and I, I'm sure that the the long gestation period has, I mean, kept you close to the process and not so attached to the product. And, um, yeah. and I find when, uh, when I stay close to the process of doing things, the product tends to sort of work itself out a bit. 
Um, and, uh, so, um, yeah, I'm glad you planted that seed. And that sounds like quite a, a week and we'll have to commiserate some other time about, uh, I'll, I have three daughters and they were all born at home and my, our middle daughter, um, the midwife actually got called in on another gig, um, with a, a woman who had gone into premature labor and, uh, yeah, I was there <laughs> kind of, uh, uh, all of a sudden stepping into a role that I didn't quite expect. <laughs> so we'll have to, we'll have to talk about that at some time. It's but, huge. um, yeah, yeah, it is huge. And, um, yeah. And, you know, it's incredible what we can all, um, step into really and um and uh and achieve you know and sometimes we have to be forced into those moments of discomfort right and, yeah, yeah. and you talk a lot about that and i'll set i'll kind of set up some of the conversation perhaps around that so you know modern western culture has engineered and overly sanctified a world based on comfort and convenience. Uh, I don't know about in the UK, but in the United States, we literally have convenience stores yeah, yeah. that offer this endless aisles of, of shelf stable processed food. Um, and of course, very few of us engage in physical labor. So we sit basically all day in front, in front of these glowing screens that offer instant gratification to meet mm -hmm. virtually every whim that we might have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I saw a statistic recently. We spend 94% of our time indoors. The indoor generation. We, uh, yeah. Where we enjoy our climate control in this narrow band of, of what we deem room temperature. Of course, we all enjoy on-demand entertainment at all hours, which brings unnatural uh, light into our retinas at night and at other inopportune times we drive instead of walk we protect our feet from discomfort with shoes while also causing them discomfort for the sake of vanity so i could go go on and on but the the knock-on impacts of this comfort culture which we've been very successful at exporting around the world is stress, insomnia, obesity, depression, chronic disease. In short, you know, I often think of it this way, like our culture has outpaced our evolution. It's essentially mm -hmm. maladaptive for human thriving. And, and so you address um, the degradation of life kind of head on through your work and your book and your message and how you live your life. And so I want to spend uh, our time together uh, excavating how we can eschew some of these comforts and essentially rewild our environment, our diet, our sleep, how we move and breathe, how we even sit and what we even wear. Um, so as that, as a preamble, maybe you could just start big picture with defining your notion of rewilding. Yeah. So um, I think firstly, it's this not demonizing the modern world right because it's quite easy to go down mm -hmm. that path isn't it and really it's it's disconnecting from ways of living that aren't enabling us or even serving us you know but certainly aren't enabling us to thrive as it were 
or reach what would be our human potential. So really, the rewilding process for me is to reconnect to ways of living then that are more in sync with our human biology, which are better for the for personal health and planetary health. That ultimately is the bigger picture that we can then start to relearn how to thrive, connect, become conscious beings, but ultimately reach human potential. And by human potential, I mean even what the universe is uniquely assigned for us as individuals within that environment. Rather than us all trying to compete for the same thing, it's, well, what is my unique potential and how do I discover that? Mm. You know, so that's really, for me, that would be our own version, our own understanding of our role within biodiversity. What's my independent role within biodiversity on the planet? You know, what's my unique potential? What is it I can, I can bring to the table, the interdependent table of all things right now? You know, that would be my interpretation of rewilding. Yeah, there's a koan in there uh, somewhere because on one level, um, I, I love this framing in the book that you're, we're disconnecting from our ego system, as you say, and reconnecting to our ecosystem. ecosystem. So yeah. part of that is recognizing that we are not separate beings living in some extent external separate universe separate from each other separate from nature that there is that we live in a mutual interdependent soup what the buddha called the indra's net where mm -hmm. we're all inextricably connected and things yeah. are arising um in full dependence to one another yet at the same time we are all uh nature's sort of delegated adaptability. We all are individuals, like you say, and have this, uh, this certain signature, if you will. And so there's sort of a recognition of unseparateness that we need to embrace and understand, yet at the same time, recognize that our organism is an individual blueprint. And, and this, this is the, the yin yang of 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 it is actually trying to grok both those things that, that can exist at the same time yeah and that's that concept as i say about personal and planetary health and certainly the practices in the book um are towards at the beginning understanding even about simple practices like breath work that then enable us to drop into what would be more of a, a natural frequency so we're not always upregulated or in this stressful response so that we are pretty much operating separate of nature because of course we've stepped into a survival mechanism and in survival it's like nature what's nature i, I just need to get my just my very basics <laughs> right here I, i'm you know i'm being attacked right now i need to be able to defend myself what's the mechanisms in place and you know I, nature in that sense even if you were left out in the wild for instance can become quite brutal we have this romantic idea about the natural setting and natural scene but it's not without threat it's just it's a acute threat it's not constant and i think the right. practices yeah. where we need to get to or become more aware of like the inner practices enable us to get to a point where we perhaps normalize that stress is an acute response not 
chronic response. And in that moment, we can step outside. And it's much easier then, Jeff, to recognize there's my unique potential when I'm not upregulated. When I'm upregulated, it's like, I'm not even listening at that point. It's like, oh, you want to teach me breathwork? Okay, you want to teach me that? I'm so disconnected at that point. And to connect would mean, again, just, you know, it can be as simple as just a walk in the park barefooted to just, again, connect to the earth beneath one's feet or the forest or sit underneath your favorite tree. You know, it don't have to be these um, go live in a cave or go on a bushcraft weekend. It's not that context of rewilding. It's firstly just simple practices that help you unplug for a moment and to find that pause Mm. to be able to recognize that we are well, again, as you say, it's, in, it's being interconnected. Like na- humans are part of nature and nature is part of us. We're not separate. We are one thing. But again, if the stress response is fired in, we are separate from it, I believe. That's the instance, you know. We're in what I often call sympathetic overload or amygdala hijack. I think yeah. you, you refer yeah. to it as being chronically upregulated. It's, yeah. it's pretty much, I think the same thing is that we're in that sympathetic uh, nervous system and we're never, which is famously associated with fight or flight and then a whole bunch of concomitant neuromodulators, norepinephrine, epinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol, non-stop and that's when you talk about chronic stress mm. or chronic cortisol obviously we need some of those neurotransmitters sometimes to be alert <laughs> you know that's a good thing from time to time as you say in acute situations i think we're in this um predicament where so many of us are living in a kind of chronic cortisol infused state all the time and that has so many negative knock-on impacts. And you know, we can talk about some of the physiology there. But I think since you brought up nature, I want to hover there just for a moment. Um, and you know, as I mentioned before, I think you know, there's 14, 1,440 minutes in a day. And we're spending an average of over 1,350 of them inside. Um, and like you're saying, you're, you're not making a case that we return to the Serengeti. Um, you're introducing more practical la- ways to live in greater sync with our biology and, and nature. So maybe you can unpack that a little bit. How can we cr- reconnect uh, yeah. with nature on so, an everyday um, basis? In the UK, very similar. So the stats in the UK, 83% of people in the UK live in urban environments and spend 90 to 95% of their time indoors. So if you were to call it 90%, that would mean you'd have to spend 2.24 hours outside to be still even included within the indoor generation. I know, I mean, 90% indoors, 10% outdoors. Um, And that doesn't include in the car, in the convenience store, you know, it means inconveniently being outside, right? Um, underneath the blue sky, or it could be in the park, in the forest, whatever it is. But the more, what studies suggest is the more natural the experience, the more diverse that nature would be, the more heightened that emotional state would be. 
but there's other there's other protocols there and other practices right so the first stage for me would be well try and at least get your supplement of 10 percent or if you're or if your study is showing 94%, go and get your 6% outdoors. But again, with that 6%, try and make that 6% the most organic experience there is. You know, I have this saying within the book that inorganic consumption leads to inorganic behaviors and beings, right? So try and, again, upload as much organic experience you can. That might mean um, organic movement either because we think of organic food but what's organic movement okay walking with a really upright posture opening up your visual field um trying to feel the mm. ground through your feet trying to get as much spiritual skin in the game wear less layers even interact with the environment differently inhale the environment differently through your nose through your ears through your sight right so that's an, an organic expression um then you can, once you have that, set the timer, but journal as well, journaling an experience when you're outdoors. How does it compare the forest to the woodland, to the beach even, to the, to the local park? What's the experience? What does it feel like to sit beneath this tree or this tree? What does it feel like to walk barefoot across the grass, across the sand? Um, we have so many extra receptors in our feet that are constantly feeding our movement brain, right? So there's, there's that obviously there's a the neuroplasticity that comes through that. And we're so divorced from that. You know, we wear thick rubberized proprioceptive kind of numbing defense mechanisms against that inconvenient terrain. Right. But really it becomes more inconvenient over time because we're not getting a new expression through that environment. We, we're not opening our senses up to that environment. We're not, we're not receiving that microbiome hit. There's a study that I put in the book. This is nature related and it's a, um it's nursery schools or kindergartens in finland and they take a standard fin you know, nursery playground which is like concrete or tarmac asphalt and they fill it they they manipulate it to rewild it to become like a forest floor and they find within a very short window of time that the microbiome of both intestinal and skin of the children has drastically improved um, massive shifts within that, but also their T cells, right? So their immune markers are up, which we know through microbiome anyway, but that's just a, a short window of time within that environment. And forest bathing studies give us that as well. Like within a three day experience of forest bathing, we have, um, there's a, there's the phytoncides that the plants give out when we inhale that that's their antifungal and antibacterial properties. We inhale it. Our mechanism is we add our natural killer cells, which help then with viruses and tumors even. And they show within a three-day forest bathing experience, that's 30 days that experience makes that shift within those T cells. So that's just, that alone is profound, right? And that's a short window of time in nature. So if you were to just think, well, if that's what happens when I'm out in that environment, what does it show me about the environment I exist in daily? You know, yeah, we have right. to flip it that That's way. It's like, point. oh, well, just within a short window of time within a school environment and the kids weren't out there permanently. That's their break time. They go out there. Right. So just in probably their supplement of two hours, 24 on a manipulated forest playground has a huge impact. The biodiversity of that alone impacts their microbiome of both skin and their intest intestinal um, biome and their T cells, their immune system improves for that. 
And then we have other studies that suggest that 20 minutes, just 20 minutes in nature lowers heart rate, blood pressure, cortisol, right? So hold on a minute. So if that's happening, what it must mean that in this environment, um, I'm affecting my microbiome, my intestinal, my skin, my T cells, my heart rate, my blood pressure, the negative, right? But if I only go over here for a short period of time, so let's try and maybe extend this maybe as a way of, can I take my meetings outside? Can I have my meetings walking? Can I take my week meetings that were perhaps over WhatsApp? Can I do that in the park? Can I find a Wi-Fi signal that allows that at least, right? Um, yes, we still have EMF going on and everything else, but I'm, I'm getting a nature. Maybe I can take my shoes off with that experience. That's, that's how simple it can be. But then what can we flip? We could say, Jeff, that ah, in the forest, I have this real amazing sense of smell of pine, right? And I, and I love it. So I'm going to take that smell, whatever it is, or whatever it is I pick up in that environment, I'm going to bring more of that into my everyday urban environment and, and think of this organic versus inorganic. So as much organic as I can bring into my everyday environment where I spend 90 to 95% of my time, how can I flip that environment? And we know breath work is one thing we can be doing because that has the same lowering of heart rate, blood pressure, and all the things that are associated from just being in nature. So we can flip that. We can bring breath practices in. But we can also bring nature scenes in. We can bring smells. We can change the materials in the home. And I think one of the, one of the places that really needs focus in that sense is like the bedroom where you'll spend eight hours in the same box breathing in and out the same experience through everything, through the eyes, through the ears, through that spiritual skin again, all absorbing the same experience for eight hours. That's a third of your life in the same space. So over time, you know, this stuff over here is for free, right? So nature, we go out there, that's, we don't pay for that, right? We just go and feel all that amazing benefits. But in the bedroom, to start with, you might have to spend a bit of money, and this is individual specific again as how you do this. For us, we did it bit by bit by bit by bit, and we transformed the environment over time by stripping out what was inorganic and replacing it with organic, you know, so the bedding, the materials, and then changing the air quality by bringing air purifiers in, bringing more plants in, and just changing the expression of that environment, and even down to mattress toppers and making those of organic material, and just, just thinking that that will change my sleep habit because the habitat has become more organic therefore my sleep will become more organic you know and it's simple things like that i would just become more of a nature connoisseur in that sense of that's how i feel when i'm out there how can i bring more of that magic into this everyday environment to make this just as magic i guess you know hmm i love that so much there um to pull on one word that you said that I found to be quite interesting when you were talking about the children getting outside in, in Finland at recess and, uh, and this um, reestablishment of the asphalt as a yeah. forest floor, you, um, you called it a supplement. Um, and it's a sort of kind of interesting use of words because I think people are very used to the notion of supplements as a, as um, you know, vitamins, I'm going to take my D3 or my omega-3 fatty acid fish oil capsules or my vitamin C in the morning. 
but in, in a way, you can see all of these different praxis as supplements um, in, um, that you can add, you can supplement your life. And, um, you know, I think you acknowledge the fact that yeah, a lot of people don't have as much choice around immersing themselves in nature. Uh, you mentioned this forest bathing technique, which uh, I think in Japanese is called sh- Shinrin Yoku. So in many ways, it's really about maximizing the time that we actually have outside. And you give a number of just absolutely fantastic suggestions. So one of the things I do when I try to get out first thing in the morning or within 20 minutes uh, of getting up, and there's a whole variety of good reasons to do that around setting your circadian clock, which we can potentially explore later. But I try to look at the sky in all of its bigness and grandeur because we spend so much time looking at the screen. So what you say, literally opening the aperture mm. of your eyes. Um, and then, you know, one of my um, little meditation hacks is trying to concentrate or focus on the symphony of sounds that are around us in nature at all times, because we generally trudge through life hearing things monophonically as if it's just one big wave out there. But when you start to refine your attention, quite often there are 35, 40 little sounds going on everywhere. And you can start to place them in this kind of stereophonic field around you. And all of a sudden, what you find is that you're just focused right here, right now. You're just all in. And what then that creates down the line is that your life becomes punctuated by that kind of presence. Even when you're Mm. in your (laughs) inside in your day job or whatever you're doing. And so, you know, you call out all of these little supplements. We can't all live in nature, but we can live more naturally, as you say, which is just a wonderful way of putting it. A hundred percent. I recently held a retreat back at 42 Acres. I have one coming up um, in, um, in Yorkshire, at a place called Broughton Hall. And I do a lot of nature immersion work. There's, there's some breath practices, there's movement, there's cold immersion, but the nature immersion stuff. Um, I start people, we've already gone through breath and I get, I get them to like the edge of the woodland or the forest. And firstly, I just say, right, I need you to just say these words for me. I trust the process. And they say, I trust the process, all in chorus. I respect the process. I respect the process. I'm patient in the process. I'll be patient in the process. And when I finally figure out this is all process, I will just be because I am the process, right? You know, that's that's where I get it. That's it. And I go, right, okay, here you go. And I hand everyone a blindfold, Jeff. And they're all blindfolded. Right now, we it's silent. No one speaks. We're silent. We're just going to be in a line. I want you to hold the shoulders of the person in front of you. So they're all holding the shoulders in front. They don't have any shoes on at this point. I forgot that part. So they don't have any shoes on, so they're barefoot. And I walk them, or they're shuffling at this point, just gentle shuffling. And I take them through a forest, and I and I have it mapped on a path, and I take them around. 
and they're breathing, nasal breathing, and I have this language of one step, one breath, one step, one breath. So the step and the breath are about refinement and just tuning in that that's all there is. Every step is a new and every breath is a new. And then the, the senses are alive, right? Because you're walking over that terrain barefoot. You've opened up like those 200,000 receptors that reside in the feet. The hearing, the ancestral ears, right, are just like to the sounds. You've taken 10%, which is visual, away. So everything else is awake. And then I, and then I stop them and I take one person from the back and I t- walk them into the woods and I sit them somewhere underneath a tree or whatever it is. And then I have them, right, okay, we're going to do 100 cycles of breath, all nasal breathing, right? Relax the belly, relax the lower abdomen, the pelvic floor, and just try and breathe up the nose and into that space and then out of the nose, 100 cycles. When you reach your 100 cycles, you can take your blindfold off. And then I go on to the next and we walk through the woods and I take one from the back and I place them out and I go right round the whole of this forest around a lake in this scenario. And then by the time I dropped them off, I come back again and I come back to the beginning. I arrive where the first person I dropped off is sitting. And they're just like, <laughs> you know, it's like forest bathing on cocaine. You know, it's like just <laughs> like this high definition that these guys, you can see that it's like on psychedelics or something in the woods, just completely open, sobbing in some cases, you know, because it's just so aware and awake and that hearing that you're, 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 you're alluding to earlier. That's, that's where you can take it, you know, that's where it can be taken. And, and what the feedback after these practices that they 100% get it at that point, that's what it is to be tuned in, you know, that's where we can go. And some experiencing nature all around them, like suddenly um, the birds will be closer to them, you know. The animals within that habitat will become closer to them because they're not operating at this heightened, alert, stressed state. They're really tuned in to this completely calm, natural frequency that we can all reach, right? Um, that's, that's, That's where we can go with it. That's like supplementing mm. on um, the forest floor, supplementing through the hearing experiences, that real expression of where we could take it with what it is to be an organic being within an organic environment. Right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's really a refining and attuning our senses to things that we have forgotten in a way. Uh, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about when you're walking, let your feet kiss the ground. You know, what an idea. Um, Just to be that present, that here, right now. Because we spend so much of our time bemoaning the past and then projecting the trauma of the past into the future <laughs> as an anticipated negative memory <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um and we're never here and um and most of the time when we're here um we're just fine and in fact we're we're thriving while we're just here um and and sometimes we need to be shaken up a little bit to get here and so 
you know, there is this kind of whole movement now around adversity mimetics or hormesis, um, for example, the body's positive uh, response to short-term stressors. So cold water immersion is one that has emerged to be a very popular one. Um, and of course, as we mentioned, you know, we're very accustomed to this climate controlled mm-hmm. environment. And then all of a sudden we're in an ice bath or a cold shower. So can you talk a little bit about cold immersion therapy? And obviously as an athlete, you're very used to it from a restoration perspective, but maybe a little bit more of kind of the spiritual dimensions or the physiological yeah, where, impact. Where we can take it. I. I'll tell a story to start with about someone that I see. Um, and his name is Yehudi. And I mentioned him in the book, but I put him in at the beginning and a bit later on, but in the beginning around rites of passage, right? Because I see the ice bath as a right, a modern day rite of passage in a way, because at some stage it's, it's not like that we all could turn on a hot water tap, right? And have a warm shower. We would have all been exposed to cold, right? As you say, we're, we've basically normalized room temperature. So not only do we operate in room temperature all day, when we go out, we want to still be dressed up as if we're in room temperature, right? (laughs) So um, (laughs) yeah, there's that experience, right? And then of course, you could even marry up sleep studies with that. So there's lighting that inhibits melatonin, but there's also this understanding of when the sun goes down, it gets cooler and that also helps with melatonin, right? So, um, but this, this guy, Yehudi, he's now 82. And he first came to see me at the age of 72 and he wanted to learn how to walk. And so he had this stooped posture, you know, like really rounded in the back and was head chasing. And so I said, okay, let's jump up on the treadmill. I'll record you and I'll show you what it looks like. Because of course I could tell you to stand upright all day long and you could swear blind you're standing upright, but until someone shows you the camera never lies. Right. So he was horrified at this posture. And so I took him through ground rest positions and rewilding his feet and then looked at footwear and got him in barefoot shoes and had him hanging and hanging there enabled him to open up this whole rib cage and become much more upright and empowered. And in his commute turned into walking to the tube train in the morning. And then he'd jump on the tube and people say, do you want to sit down? He'd go, no, no, I'm okay. <clears throat> and he'd hang from the bars when the train was moving. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then when the doors open, he'd squat. And then when the doors close again, he'd surf. So that's not holding on to any rails. <clears throat> and he would surf. And so um, that's that's kind of where he went. And then I found out years later that, oh, he wanted to learn to walk because he wanted to go to Everest Base Camp for his 50th anniversary with his wife. Since then, he did uh, Everest Base Camp, Bhutan, Mount Kenya, Atlas Mountains, just off, you know, just suddenly this empowered late 70s right and so that firstly was just for me it changed my own templates of what 70 pluses would be you know so imagine to his kids and his grandkids he's suddenly just flipped what the 70s can be you know you can and it's never too late jeff i think we can all take that message right it's never too late but he was terrified this guy of the cold he was born as a stillborn, the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. And so he explains it, his story, right? His trauma from the past that was determining his, how every step was being made, including the one of getting in cold water was based on this 
story that he'd put together around his trauma. You know, oh, they were blasting me with freezing cold oxygen. I was put on a cold slab and then, you know, and then it, it, it went from there. So I spent probably an hour the night before a workshop convincing Yehudi to come to this, what was, uh, we called it move, breathe, chill. You play and you move in play and it kind of breaks down all those layers and the facade and the atrophied state that adult life is so serious. And then it opens us up to the breath and then the breath goes in. And it's very deep because you haven't got to get past the breaking down of those layers to get into the breath to begin with. It's already done. And it's very playful. I call it rechilding that practice. And so then from the, from the play to breath, it was into the ice. And um, he was the first person to get in. And this guttural roar, this roaring came out of him. It was like, Wah! you know, and he was 79 at this stage, right? And so to everyone witnessing this already, it's like, wow, this guy, this guy's showing up today, right? You know, showing us this is what, this is the potential of this stuff. And he, and when he got out, I was like, you haven't, let's go again. If we go again, then we know we're done, right? So in he went again, same with you, ah. So he's now 82. So from that workshop to where we are today, since then, he's been going to, we have some uh, wild swimming in Hampstead. They call it the Hampstead Ponds. There's a film about this, the ponds it's called. Um, it's on our heathland here and there's certain ponds. There's a men's pond, there's a women's pond, there's a mixed pond. And he's been going all the, for the whole time, like five times a week, he's been rocking up and going wild swimming all the way through the winter. Suddenly this huge wow. shift in this person. So he messaged me, Jeff, to say, um, on one of these mornings, Tony, I have to thank you because I finally found peace. You know, so we're talking about an 82 year old guy and mm. it's not like he hasn't done the work. This is someone who wakes up and he does his meditation. He's, you know, he's eating clean. You know, he has his water purifiers. He has all this stuff going on, but it was still what was normalized and it needed that rite of passage to really get through so that he could have this peak and drop back under. And again, it's never too late. You know, I think that highlights that, but it's also highlights we've lost something very important back then, you know, which is this rite of passage that enables us to step outside what were perhaps limiting behaviors or self-limiting behaviors, or even, socially our social groups that can be limiting and that's not an insult to our social groups you know we we look at that through a compassionate lens but some of those behaviors might not be enabling us to thrive right so it's yeah i think yeah. the rite of passage is something that that it needs to be looked at in that sense and that for me is a spiritual practice but it's a physical practice and it's also a social practice, you know, that can lead to what would be then the encompassing of that would be emotional well-being, right? You know, and there's also, of course, yeah, the physical so benefits of getting in the cold. I'm an endurance athlete; it helps me recover like quite profoundly. I can get up and go and do another two marathons the next day. Get up and go and do another two marathons the next day. But I think there's something more profound at play there, or we can use it for something much deeper than just, oh, I've, I've my tissues have recovered well, or I'm, I'm not aching this yeah. morning, you know? It's, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. There's a, a lot of elements to it. I mean, as you mentioned, there's this thermogenesis component to it. So 
our bodies actually spend a tremendous amount of our ATP actually regulating our and maintaining our own temperature. Yep. A part of life is just being warm. <laughs> and so when you are dropping your body temperature through cold exposure, essentially your mitochondria go into overdrive of any energy production and you burn what's available. So if you have glucose in your bloodstream at that juncture, you know, hopefully if you're functioning well, insulin is ushering that into your cell and you're using that um, for energy production. But for me, I'm, I do a 16-8 fasting protocol. Um, so I'm super, and I have a generally very low glycemic diet. So I will cold shower in the morning um, in a relatively like fasted state. Yeah, yeah. And then my body goes into thermogenesis and what, you know, so it, the only thing that's available for it to burn is breaking down triglycerides into free fatty acids and essentially ketones as well. So I'm burning fat. So if you're mm -hmm. really interested in weight loss or the burning of adipose tissue, just from a physiological perspective, uh, cold water therapy plus kind of a low glycemic diet is a, is a pretty effective way of doing that. But as you say, I think you're right. There's a totally other spiritual component to it. So Wim Hof came to my property for three weeks and we had a, we have a cold plunge there and we were getting a commercial ice delivery every day and yeah. we were gathering these groups you know, 20, 30 people, and he would be out there holding court. First you get in the blouse, then you do the breath, and, you know, the whole thing. And, um, but the communal experience of it um, was such a bonding kind of thing because a lot of people, as you say, were like petrified of getting into the cold. And, um, and you can create a lot of community around resilience or around adversity, I suppose, in this case. Like I know we're both friends with the Flynn brothers and they do this yeah, yeah. wonderful, um, you know, thing in the sea. Swim rides. I think it's every morning. Yeah, swim yeah. rides every morning. And, yeah. and they've built this, this whole community around it. And it's almost then become more about the community and the inner relationships and the vulnerability that exists within those conversations. I mean, you talk about this too. It's like, we often, um, we often avoid discomfort, even in our conversations. Yeah. yeah. And so this is literally an icebreaker, I guess, if you will. Yeah. Um, we, so um, is, um, yeah. I've been working, um, I've developed something, it's called the hundred human experience. So it started off as those initial workshops like with Yehudi, they were more intimate. Mm -hmm. And it's blown up to something that's now a two-day experience, a bit like a festival, but again, intimate because there's only a hundred humans there and everyone goes through the same experience. So whereas the ice bath is one form of what we could call rite of passage, the play can even be that for some, because play through play, we suddenly can see ourselves mm -hmm. outside of what can be, say if we get stuck, it's like you can play out something else and you can become something else. You can become another being almost. So that's one. Then we've introduced um, ecstatic dance. So ecstatic dance, even um, we had someone there that's been that is a very successful music producer, super successful. And post hundred human experience, I said, "Well, what was the most challenging part for you? Was it the ice? Was it's it actually the ecstatic dance, Tony? It was like I had this profound insight." <laughs> and I said, like, "Okay," he said, "Because 
I've been working in music. He said he was a he was a pirate radio station years ago, way back. That was the beginning, you know. Then he was a DJ playing out for like could be ten thousand people. Um, he met his wife through music, become very successful as a producer, but he'd never danced without substances. And here we are in daylight at this experience, and we've broken down layers through play and everything else. And now we're at this point where we're dancing, right? And but it's freedom dancing. It's not like you're following a particular type of pattern that we've familiarized over time. It's just seeing where you can go within yourself, within what's free at that time and what you can access. And he and it took him, like Yehudi's explanation of the ice, it took this guy back to the school disco, like the first school dance disco. Okay where suddenly you're thrust, girls were on this side, boys were on this side, and you were, he was standing up against the wall, and suddenly it was like, you now have to dance, and being frozen in that moment. And it took him there in this experience. So ecstatic dance became his rite of passage, you know? And for others, mm. we've introduced voice awakening. So voice awakening, where we're having people play with their voice. Um, and it can be even trying to communicate without a word you know. So it's like you're, blah, 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 and, but you have to, with intention and expression, you're trying to communicate what it is exactly it is. And again, these people are just having these profound moments because there's stuff that gets so stuck that they haven't been able to communicate or haven't been able to express. And if you think of this, that we're born and we're born into the world, and the moment we're born, Jeff, we come out making noise, like, ah, you know, screaming. And then since that moment, everyone's like, mm -hmm. shh, 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 trying to keep us quiet, you know, and this notion that yeah. children should be seen, not heard. So I guess in that moment for some, even shouting and yelling and just expressing themselves that way has become their rite of passage. Right. Yeah. Like you say, I mean, we, the repression that a lot of us feel is part of our social training. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we have to kind of retrain ourselves to let go of the ego and embrace the eco, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is really just eschewing this idea that you are judged through the eyes of others, you know, that there are these social conventions or institutions that we need to adhere to that are keeping us in in these little boxes and they're perpetuating what michael singer calls these samskaras you know these negative patterns of energy um that that you know re-emerge over and over again that that um you know, contribute to to our own sense of limitation and uh, and you're breaking down those barriers um which is just um which is just brilliant. And, um, you know, connected to cold water therapy um, is obviously the breath. Yeah. Um, so I know you do so much work um, with the breath. And, you know, so many of us are just completely unconscious of our breath. And we take these short, snippy little breaths through our mouths. Um, but the breath is fascinating uh in that it's both a bottom-up behavior and a top-down and, and i guess what i mean by that is that it occurs quite innately below the crust of consciousness as a product of our autonomic nervous system yet we can also 
put our attention to it. And in this way, it's sort of, it is a pathway into our nervous system. And when we consciously breathe, we can activate this parasympathetic state, as you say, or downregulate, or we can even upregulate when we want to do that. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about some of the different breath techniques that you leverage and how they impact our biology? Yes, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because again, it's the first act of life and the last act of life. Mm -hmm. But we know so little, you know, about the breadth of that, (laughs) you know, what that is. Like my son, Bo, was... You know, he's still breastfed and he, he came off the boob and we, and he's lying asleep at that point. So we lay him down, but his mouth was still open because he'd been breastfeeding. So we just close his lips for a moment and then it encourages his nasal breath again. Right. You know, it's like sim- simple practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course, what's come yeah. in with that, with the great work of Patrick McEwen, you know, oxygen advantage, like taping up the mouth and encouraging nasal breath. Um, so we know through nasal breathing, this nitric oxide this miracle molecule that's stimulated through the na- not through nasal breathing will um enable vasodilation bronchial dilation um it's also an antiviral thing a way of understanding breath right there's antiviral pr- properties within that um as an endurance athlete it makes it it makes so much more sense because i become more efficient bronchial dilation means i'm more efficient at absorbing oxygen Basal dilation means I can, again, get that heart rate, blood pressure down. Um, it's associated with parasympathetic, so I can be more rest, restful in that state. Um, there's also studies that suggest that you lose 42% more vapor. There's 40% more vapor loss through mouth breathing. So, hmm. wow, when you're running, I mean, what I want, a 42% vapor loss. I mean, just incredible, right? Huge. So I've been working with nasal breathing for my endurance events because it means I can be out there for longer. But something really quite remarkable is that I find the recovery is more than anything. It's like, ah, I can get up and go and do this again. You know, there's other variables like chafing and stuff like that. No nasal breathing is going to help you with that. But the or breaking a toe on one of the events. But breathing helps me deal with the trauma of that experience, right? It enables me to get my head back in the game and not, fall into the victim mindset of, oh, no, I've broken a toe and it's day one. I've got another eight days to go of this. So breath enables me to kind of get back in the game, I would say. And cold does that, of course. Like cold immersion does that, enables you to just suddenly, we get that upregulation peak and then we can drop back under. I find breathing is really this, it's understanding it throughout the day is probably the best cue or tip I could give someone. So I have a practice in the book I've called reboot it's like a reboot breath and you would look on the hour then because I could have the most amazing breathwork practice in the morning I do part of my daily morning routine is I do breath right and I do cold and I get out underneath natural light but what then if the day starts to accumulate like it can right is that this stressor comes in right the next one comes in the next and then all of a sudden it starts to grow this ball of stressor and but it's okay i did my breath in the morning but that doesn't mean anything right now right it may have guided the day but i've now an accumulation has kicked in and so i would look at every hour on the hour checking back in with the breath and it can be a simple practice like um, again relaxing the pelvic floor the lower abdomen 
trying to, if you just for a moment now while you're sitting there is just think of that alone, we can check in immediately. Oh my God, oh, all right, I'm sitting here now because I've just relaxed my pelvic floor. I've made a connection to where I'm sitting mm. even. So I'm in yeah. the space, right? I've dropped in already. And then simple, right? Relax the shoulders, you know, relax the solar plexus and then start to just bring a breath up through the nose. Yeah. And we can direct the breath, you know? So I would think about a long in inhale, but what we're picking up on now, the science is suggesting the exhale is associated with parasympathetic. So if you put your finger on your pulse and you inhale, you'll notice the pulse will pick up. As you exhale, you get a dropping off of your pulse. So really, if you want to kind of think about down regulation and being relaxed and being present in that space is focus more on your exhale. So think exhale, mm -hmm. like if someone was in stress, the worst thing you can say is breathe. What you really want to say is breathe out because the chances <laughs> are they've gone, <gasps> you know, so telling them to breathe more would be, so breathe out first phase and then take an inhale up through the nose and then exhale. I'm, there's no breathing police here. So it, it can be an exhale out the nose or an exhale out the mouth, whatever it needs to be, right? But try and guide the breath up through the nose and then take longer exhales. And what you might find is if you, the more rehearsed or more refined that practice becomes, you're normally looking at about four seconds in and six seconds out, which is 10 seconds. So Jeff, mm -hmm. six rounds of that is a minute. That's all it takes, one minute one minute on the hour, you know, or finish your call or whatever it is a minute earlier or start the next one a minute later. And the other thing with breath, I would say I have a, I'm in my studio now, it's separate to the house, but it's very easy to get mixed up between what is work and family life if you work from home, okay? So a great practice again is to work with breath before you leave the space or before you enter the next space, you know? So my mm, kids and my yeah. family would have been waiting for me for a couple of hours. Um, I'm in a space, say for instance, I've just come off a stressful call and I'm gonna re-enter that space and I'm still carrying whatever it is. So my papa powers, let's say, as I call them, uh, I've suddenly, this saboteurs come in. So they're not really receiving me, they're receiving a percentage of me, you know? And the same as if I'm entering a space to maybe jump on a call, but I'm still in the economics of the house or been playing guitar with the kids. It's reframing again. It's like I'll enter this space and I'll just do a bit of breath before going into the next experience. It can be even associating the door handle with going into that space. I have someone that I mentor and her relationship with her father, um, going back to previous stories and, and years back, you know, that she still would meet her father, but she'd find that the stories would, something would play out, you know, oh, it's his behavior or it's her behavior. And she would get upregulated and then they'd fall out, you know? So I brought in the conversation around the ice bath and just, these are the breathing practices that we're doing when we're in the cold, or these are the breathing practices we're doing before entering. And I choose a lot of the time is down regulation before getting in the cold. So that same tempo of four and six, even before entering the stress. And then when in the stress, just continuing the breath through it. So there's these extended exhales to remain calm. So seeing the ice as a stressor that I can see differently when I approach it, I can be more calm and then I can be calmer whilst in the stressful experience. So it changes the idea or notion what the adversity even is. 
So for her, it's like, okay, let's treat the home, the father experience as the ice bath now. So before you enter, nice. you do your rounds of breath. As you enter the house, you breathe out as you exhale, as you go in. So when we teach people to go in the cold, we breathe out every time we make a step or lower into the cold. So it could be to the belly button, to the chest, shoulders, base of neck, always on the exhale, getting into a cold shower, step in with the exhale, putting the cold shower over your back, do it on the exhales and guide it through the breath. So for her, it was use the exhale and Papa or whoever the stressor is in that scenario, they don't, no one knows your nasal breathing at a four, six tempo. I'm doing it now, right? Who, who knows? But you have a handle on things because you're in, you're in control. You're in a parasympathetic state. You're in with the breath. You know, yeah. I, I think they're very valuable practices really to play with, you know? Yeah. You also, um, make a, a, a fantastic point that I had never, uh, that had never occurred to me prior to reading the book, um, about the breath and its relationship to digestion. Now, of course yeah. it makes total sense. Rest and digest. Um, <laughs> that it's called rest and digest the parasympathetic state. But, you know, we often hear that old adage, you know, you are what you eat, but you actually take that a bit further and you say, well, actually you are what your body can properly absorb. absorb. Mm. And if you are never in that rest and digest state, because you're constantly upregulated in sympathetic overload, your body, your body's metabolism is just not going to function at an optimal level. So you're not absorbing the nutrients and you might be eating the best diet ever, but you're not properly absorbing those macronutrients um, or the micronutrients, et cetera. So can you pull on that a tiny bit, how important breath is for digestion? Yeah, it's the same, it's the same language as the um, calming before entering the space. Um, there's sympathetic, as we discussed, which is like this fight and flight, but there can also be the alert state, right? So they're just different understandings. Of, hmm. One's more anxious and one is alert, I'm, re I'm point of readiness almost that um, we can achieve. And then there's the parasympathetic, which is this rest and digest. So let's say um, I've, I've, I reference lots of indigenous cultures within the book. So let's say um, if we strip it all back, right? And Jeff and I are moving over a landscape and we have so much spiritual skin in the game, a bit like the blindfolded people on my retreat, right? And they went from that experience into foraging. So we can even use that, right? So you're moving through a landscape, you're barefoot, you're tuned in, you're plugged in, you're feeling everything within that environment. You're smelling it, you're sensing it, you're completely tuned in. You are primed to absorb. And one could go even further and say that, you know, that, you're ready to receive what it is that your body needs in that moment, right? We could even go that far with it. You know, we could say that all animals have this ability to self-medicate. So why wouldn't the human animal have that? You know, it's just our food groups are somehow manipulated that to become highly palatable, but also in the same breath, we are walking around in a sympathetic state, fight and flight, which drives those highly palatable foods even more. But 
our digestive system isn't primed. So we don't necessarily have, you know, have stomach acid or enzymes in place because we're not rested. The digestion isn't rested. So if we were to move through a landscape and we feel what we're feeling and we smell what we're smelling and we can pick it and we can taste smell and we can taste, everything is primed for absorption. So we have that. Um, and then we, if we were to say Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You know, you're aware of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So we have the very basic needs at the bottom of the pyramid and food is one of those. So we can make a comparison to, I'm this being that is fully tuned into the environment, moving across the landscape, fully tuned in, prime for absorption, eat what it is I need versus, um, I've just come straight off a call. I don't have a handle on my breath work, so I'm really upregulated right now. And I know I've got another meeting later on, and I'm still carrying the conversation I had last night because I didn't manage to decompress from that or downregulate from that process. Um, I was plugged into my hypervisual state, which is also sympathetic, staring at my screen, which means that my metabolism was out and my digestive system was out because I suppressed melatonin. And melatonin is the the main regulatory system, even for your digestive system, or enables your re three regulatory systems for your digestive system. And then I've run into the super, into the convenience store to grab something that has a long shelf life, right? Um, that has been shipped for miles away, that's sitting in a piece of plastic packaging. And I grab it and I ram it down me as quickly as I can, because I've got to get back to the next thing. Whose food need is met on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So there's there's that. I mean, there's sometimes the foods aren't a choice. That's what we have to eat. But there's the way that we choose to eat them is our choice, and we have full control over that if we understand it. And you could have um, the most amazing diet, but a really poor digestive system versus a not so great digest um, food system, but a better digestive system you would be better off for absorption. So we have this understanding of food, mm. let food be thy medicine, but really it's the digestive system that will enable that to be the medicine or not the medicine, right? And in some cases, even really healthy food groups are compromising for some because they just can't um, um, work with the food itself because the digestive system is out, right? You know. So I yeah. think it's it's yeah, really I mean, it's understanding how to downregulate. I think it's just firstly it's what happens when we're stressed out um, and we are sympathetic. There's very costly systems, right? So if I need to fight or flight, let's say there's a lion comes in rah, right now, and I need to my 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 system needs to understand how to run at that point. I'm not going to stand there and fight a lion, right? So I need as much fuel and energy as I can to get myself out of that situation. So what's costly the digestive system is very costly so to to save on that cost my digestive system will literally just shut the thing down you know stomach acid will be inhibited those processes will be inhibited to help fuel me to get me out of that space so where can i go with that okay the threat's over the stressful email the boss the whatever it was down regulate immediately get get back into breath or go for that shoeless walk or sit under that tree um, or take your time even in the supermarket the convenience store is take your time one step one breath the blindfold walk through that environment and take your time don't get swept up with the with it's maybe a minute or two minutes in addition to what your day is but 
you'll be able to absorb what it is you're eating. That That's the difference. And it can be the old form of grace, you know, sitting down at the dinner table and spending a moment to just sit and be with the foods. And we have a practice where we, you know, we give gratitude to the plants, the animals, whatever it is, and we're sit for that moment. And then start to understand the smells of the food and the textures of the food and start to have a relationship with your foods, I think is also key, right? You know, and you can go as far as you want with that. It may even be have relationships to the people that are producing the food even. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if you think about um, the fight or flight state, you know, kind of what's happening physiologically, you know, your heart rate is increasing, your breath rate is increasing, all of the, your pupils are dilating, potentially <laughs> all of the blood is moving to your extremities because your muscles need to be ready for action yeah. and your digestion shuts down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so if you think about, um, you know, professional athletes, uh, although I know that there was an example in your particular case that is an outlier to this, but generally your digestion shuts down. You know, you're not taking a number two when you're in the finals of Wimbledon mm. um, because you're in a, you know, essentially a, a fight or flight state. Um, so, you know, if you really want to get the most out of your food, like you say, you know, that's a great practice, you know, whether you're, you know, a religious person and you actually say grace or just have a moment of gratitude when you're sitting down before you eat. Or in our family, we have this ritual called Rosebud Thorn, where we kind of go around the circle with my three girls and we talk about what was the rose of our day, what was the bud of our day, and what mm. was the thorn of our day. Okay, yeah, nice. And, um, and it really gets my girls to kind of open up about what's going on in their lives and gives me a window into, you know, what's happening with them. And it's a beautiful ritual. And it often just then meanders off into these other topics. Um, but it is a, it's a way, but it's a way for us to really engage with each other's lives. And what we find is that we eat very slow, <laughs> very slowly. And we're just kind of, there and the food you know becomes um almost a tool to to bring us together and to uh foster conversation and community and of course the the knock-on impact of that is that we're eating slowly and we're we're there and we're we're down regulated and um so you know there's a there's myriad practices i think that people um can can use for this and and then of course there are times where we want to be alert. So, you know, a, a lot of the breath practices that we've talked about are like four, six, for example, or Andrew Weil has his kind of famous four, seven, eight, yeah. um, which you can leverage when you're in times of uh, fear often for, I think he's used it for that, where you're, you know, breathe in for four and hold for seven and exhale for eight, but they're very exhale oriented. They're down regulated focused but then you know there's kind of more of the wim hof or tumo um, style which is more about purposefully upregulating through quasi hyperventilation techniques or that that um invoke kind of a state of hyperoxia yeah um which you know can be dangerous a little bit if you're you don't want to do it standing up um, <laughs> or driving or or, or or driving yeah um yeah. but you know we want sometimes to 
the body to generate epinephrine or cortisol for to invoke states of alertness. Um, sometimes that's very helpful for learning, for example. Like I have these ultradian cycles, these 90-minute cycles, uh, usually in the late morning, where I focus on learning, you know, just mm. rewiring my brain and focused on my own neuroplasticity. And part of my practice associated with getting myself into an optimal place for learning is uh, doing some of that Wim Hof style breathing, because then I'm a, kind of a, putting myself into a state of focused alertness, yep. not like frantic alertness. It's not anxious. Focused that's the point. It's not a point yeah. of anxiety. It's just a switched right. on um, process, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about sitting. So much of our modern life tends to be quite sedentary for, for many folks and mm -hmm. sitting in front of a screen. Um, so what are the impacts of sitting in a typical chair on the body? Yeah. Um, okay. So um, there's certain areas of the body that are designed for movement and certain the body areas of the body that are designed more for stability. They all have stability and mobilization roles, but there's, there's a primary role. Let's say um, your feet, for instance, right? So your feet have um, 26 bones, 33 articulations, 100 muscles, tendons, ligaments, up to 200,000 receptors that resides in a foot. Um, so it's, it has this ability to be quite moldable, but also it's a very stable foundation. And then off of that, we have quite a mobile ankle that has this ability to really hinge. And then we have a knee joint that's incredibly stable, right? Or should be in, in this case. And then we have a hip joint that's a ball and socket. So it's quite mobile, but also has a role of stability, but should be mobile. And then we have this big plus word that we all love talking about, which is a stable core, right? Or pelvic stability. And then we have a thoracic spine. If you think all the rib cage and that respiratory system is all governed around this thoracal spine, the thoracic spine has amazing flexion, extension, rotation. And then we have a stable neck. Okay. So it's like, if you think about it, it's like stable foot, mobile ankle, stable knee, mobile hip, stable pelvis, mobile mid back, stable neck. And then we have um, the chair and the chair creates a stagnant hip. So the hip mm. becomes um, locked a lot of the time, just in one position. And we can be in that position for, well, some study, I mean, it suggested like 10 and a half hours as a sedentary culture, right? For 10 and a half hours. And so what tends to happen is that instead of that really incredibly mobile hip, it becomes very stiff, it becomes very stagnant. And we start to redirect movement where it shouldn't be, which is essentially the lower back and that, that pelvic stability is no longer. So what we can do then is we think of, we go to a class and we ask for specific core stability exercises to try and make the core stable again. But then we keep going back to the very place that's led us to the symptom, which is the chair, right? So a lot of these practices are actually, we see it as simple. When I see it as symptom relief, I used to have a big Pilates studio and it was mainly a business around symptom relief. That's the way I got to understand it because most of the conditions you would see were knee, lower back and neck. And they were all the sites that it didn't make sense because when you understand it, they're incredibly stable areas. It's just they can't be if the areas that should be mobile 
are now no longer mobile because we start to redirect movement where it shouldn't be. Um, so the first port of call is really the chair. There's also footwear. Footwear plays a part in this because the footwear can compromise the shape or the behavior of the foot and redirect movement and um, can then put movement within the foot where it shouldn't be. We start to overpronate. We get locked in the ankles. The ankle becomes locked in a particular pattern. Then it means that the knee starts to offer torsion and the knee should be stable. And then because the knee's now often in torsion where it should be stable, it's the hip that now takes on the role to try and stabilize the knee again. So we end up with the chair is one process and then footwear is another. So that both areas will attack those areas that should be stable and which should be mobile. We mm. flip that and we look to, again, indigenous cultures like the Hadza that have been living the same way for tens of thousands of years that are also sedentary for 10 and a half hours, except their version of sedentary is ground-based, so they're floor-sitting cultures. Um, and now the thing about floor-sitting, like I'm floor-sitting now, is that it that's and mobilizing and stabilizing areas of the body that are meant to be mobile and meant to be stable. So if I squat, I still recognize the same weight in the soles of my feet of when I'm standing. Yeah. When I sit, I now have my weight in my bottom and in my pelvis. So when I stand up, standing is hugely inconvenient. That conversation about convenience and inconvenience there's suddenly a huge chemical metabolic cost because I'm just not familiar with weight on my feet. Therefore, I want to sit down again because it's incredibly inconvenient. The chair is mm -hmm. so much more convenient. Yeah. Right? Whereas if I familiarize myself with my weight always in my feet, there's no shift there. It's always the same body weight. But not only that, I start to then, from that solid foundation of the feet, I have the appropriate mobility in the ankle, the knee stability, the hip mobility, the pelvic stability, and the thoracal mobility that is required really to be a healthy upright being you know that's the difference between really a ground sitting practice and a chair sitting practice there's areas again that we need to honor and we need to keep going back to to reconnect with and rewild and there's floor sitting positions that you you have kids so you would have witnessed all of those amazing ground sitting positions which are also labeled as motor skill milestones except in the West, we only have a table of a certain amount of motor skill milestones. But if you never introduced a car seat or a stroller or a, um, or a chair, uh, uh, I, we don't even have them, um, a, a, a chair for sitting and for eating, you know, for yeah, kids. Right. Yeah? Yes. Um, yeah, if yeah. you remove all of that, if you, if you didn't have that, you'd see suddenly many, many, many more of those ground sitting positions. We don't have chairs in our home. So it's been witnessing suddenly for me, especially with a movement um, background and a movement brain like that, it's been quite profound witnessing that unravel within our kids. Wow, I didn't know we could do that one. Ah, that's interesting. You can suddenly see how we can be very, very fluid on the ground, you know, from one position to the next. And somewhere along the line, we become divorced from that. But in the likes of Yehudi, who I mentioned in the book again, you know, getting him back to the ground. So someone in their late 70s, suddenly ground living, suddenly squatting again and squatting, suddenly then feeding and nourishing his upright posture or kneeling. And there's certain prerequisites of squatting, like kneeling positions or sitting cross-legged or in, in, in shin boxes. And each one of those plays its part 
in that understanding of what areas in the body should be mobile and what areas of the body should be stable. And it's something we lose with chair sitting because it divorces us from those very foundations of movement. You know, that's, mm, that's where fascinating. I go that's yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. So um, if you think, so Jeff, if you think of, um, yeah. Pilates, you think of yoga, um, um, and again, we have this, what is it, Peter Kahn's model of this generational amnesia. So if we went mm -hmm. to thousands of years back of yoga, what was the environment? Were, 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 was it a chair sitting culture? No. So we're then looking at areas of the body that were incredibly mobile and incredibly stable. But then when you put a yogi practice through them, they can cope. Whereas if you're, um, a sitting culture and you're now an indoor generation and we're in this era now, not even 10 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever we're talking about right now, we've normalized that. We've forgotten that actually we weren't always a chair sitting culture. Yeah. It only really came in with the Renaissance period, right? So what I tend to find with most of my yogis or I've mentioned in the book, like yogis or martial artists, once I get them going back through ground sitting positions and they get more familiar again, with those areas that should be stable and should be mobile, their practices, they just excel when they go back to them, you know, and that could be endurance. Mm. It could be, you know, just go and do your 5k, but you're doing a 5k with a foundation of how that physiology is meant to move and how it is meant to be stable, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this is huge. So, and this is a very new praxis for me. We were discussing this briefly before we pressed the big uh, red button. Um, <laughs> squatting, for example, is um, is very challenging for me uh, because, yeah, I'm a product of modern culture. I've sat in a chair a lot or sometimes worse, like in a couch kind of slumping and rounding my back. Mm, um yeah. So, you know, now, like, you know, if I'm watching a, a Netflix with the kids or what, whatnot, I'll use like um, a yoga block. So I brought one here for those who are watching this on YouTube, but it's just a whatever yoga block. And I'll stick it under my bum and sit kind of in a kneeling position or what the yogis call virasana. Mm -hmm. And I can kind of, as I kind of open up in my, um, in my front legs and stuff like that, I can go lower put it on its lower um, uh, plane. But squatting for me, uh, which I've just now started since reading the book and, um, and really, you know, kind of pushing and, and seeing where my limitations are. And uh, of course, kind of there's this great um, ego-fueled need to get your heels onto the ground and all this stuff. Well, I can't even really come close to that without really being in a state of a lot of like stress yeah. in my body. And I think, you know, what you're talking about is squatting without stress, just yeah. as a, a place to kind of be. So, you know, I, I, as I mentioned to you before, I found the perfect piece of wood <laughs> from my wood pile <clears throat> that forms a wedge that I can put kind of behind my heels that makes the squatting position <clears throat> feel kind of natural and without too much stress. And I can kind of just breathe and relax into it and, and feel okay. And then I think you also have this suggestion of 
maybe using some kind of support in front, like my daughters are dancers, so they have a room with a little dancer's bar. That's also been kind of helpful where I can actually kind of hold on to the bar a little bit. Yeah. And then, um, and then just kind of ease into it. But, you know, I'm a competitive tennis player and uh, we were mentioning this before, but you know, when I'm at my best, I have a low center of gravity and my knees are bent. I'm almost in like a quasi squat and I'm ready to pounce and the ball just remains in front of me and I go and keep it up there. And when I'm really in that space, I'm a good player. <laughs> it's mm. when I, uh, when I get upright and I get tired or I get a little bit lazy and then I start taking a lot more kind of in my lower back and, um, and I'm just not, you know, optimally using my body. And so this is a big one for me. Um, that I'm getting from uh, from the book. And then you also have a bunch of um, ground sitting positions and poses in the book that um, that I'm starting to play with. So I think anyone that spends a lot of their life in a chair, which is probably a significant majority of the people listening, this is a huge change that you can make in your life um, that I think is yeah. really going to have positive impacts it's it's a massive game changer if you think because again it's free and if we mm-hmm. were to say even if you took 20 percent of that time that you spent sitting and put that 20 percent on the ground you know so let's say out of your um 10 hour day of sitting two hours of that is suddenly you know incrementally through the day it's two hours right that might mean netflix binging right i'm now on the ground but I'm playing with different, various different rest positions. And each one of those is a mobility exercise and a strengthening exercise because it strengthens your posture. So that's like saying I'm going to a mobility or strength class for two hours in my own home, right? Or whilst I'm on Zoom. And some Zoom calls, we can just cancel out the camera and it can just be audio. Who knows, right? I could just be having a move around on the ground and just changing from one position to the next. Or you could go with the notion that it's none of my business what other people think of me and just have your camera on and move around, you know? And I I had a day set up where it meant um, strange day in the calendar. It was like an hour on, hour off, hour on, hour off of Zoom or podcasting or meeting or my coaching. And so I was like, right, okay, I know what I can do. I'm gonna, there's a two mile run around my block. So I can do one hour of um, on sky on screen time. Then I'm gonna go and have a two this two mile lap. And I was doing them between 15 minutes and 20 minutes, right? Then I'd come back, I'd hydrate, I'd spend a bit of time outside, and then on my next call, I'd be doing all the mobility work again through ground sitting to prepare me again to go and run for the next two miles, right? That's an extreme, but I'm an endurance athlete, so I have to get my training in, right? But you could literally just, it could be just, again, the the Zoom call, it could be the Netflix or whatever it is, you can take a practice to the ground and it's free and your physiology will thank you for it, no doubt. It could be tennis, again, yeah, there's there's that understanding, that point of readiness that will come through that. And going back to how you can assist your squat, even things like this, this really expensive piece of gym kit, it's called a broom handle. You can have those <laughs> and they, you know, they have different diameters. And then over time, 
and this is what I suggest in the book, it's like setting a timer and it could be for 30 minutes and trying to accumulate 30 minutes in your day of squatting. And that might mean, oh, I set a timer for a minute. Every time I get into what should be a restful squat, it shouldn't feel like an exercise. It's only really in the West we created squatting as an exercise, but traditionally squatting is a rest position that we eat in, we poop in, you know, and we have social interactions around a fire in, right? And we eat in. So it's trying to get it back to where it's restful. So put supports behind your heel to begin with so that it can get to a point where you feel like the physiology can just downregulate again. We don't want tension in that. If it's a rest and digest position, try and get that same language of, could I absorb what I need to absorb in this position? Could I receive what I'm meant to receive? And then over time, with that 30 minutes over time daily, it will get lower and lower that support because your physiology will start to soften and you'll start to get the appropriate length where it needs to come and the appropriate stability where it needs to come. That same language of where should be mobile, which should be stable. And if you do the rest of the positions that are in the book, because they're also about prerequisites of squatting, so kneeling assist mm. squatting, you know, and other poses will assist squatting. So it's playing with all of them, really, within that conversation of 30 minutes, you know, just to mm -hmm. trying to accumulate 30 minutes a day on the ground is something, you know, and set a timer mm -hmm. to be able to achieve that. Some um, some workspaces now, you know, HR departments allow standing desks. But if you're um, compromised in those areas we're talking about, like the ankle, the knee and the hip, standing with poor posture, can, it's just as detrimental as sitting with bad posture. So it's even for those, sta the standing desk, still try and get to the squat, you know, squat, then stand. And it will help keep nurturing the posture and the framework that's needed. I call it like the superstructure, our bio superstructure, what it is to be an upright being, you know. And the ground positions enable that. They're like the foundation work of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of what, you know, we focused on in, on, in this conversation and um, is, is Tony as teacher. Um, obviously, you're widely known as um, an ultra endurance athlete. So I want to just kind of tout some of your credentials just for a moment. So among other achievements, I know that you ran, I think something like 880 miles, which is the transverse of the whole length of the island of Great Britain, right? From the two extremities. So Land's End to John O'Groats. Yeah. The and, most southern uh, tip to northern tip. Yeah. Of mainland. We have to say that. Yeah. Because yeah, there's isles the as well, but the mainland. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just watched this brilliant little documentary, which you have on YouTube. It's so called... Uh, one man, two feet, three peaks, yeah. um, which is a challenge in which you ran 17 marathons and climbed the three biggest peaks in approximately nine days and 11 hours, I think it was. Um, and you did this all barefoot. So, and on top of that, which makes this achievement even more unfathomable, I'm not sure people are completely aware of this, but you were born with club feet. Yeah. Um, now, most of us are almost never barefoot. Um, so why is it so important to reconnect to the function of our feet? Yeah, okay. So um, 
firstly, we could bring in all the nature studies and that biodiversity studies of understanding microbiome and, you know, firstly connecting our feet to the to grounding even, like that conduit, understanding the energy systems of that, the microbiome of it, um, but just the function of that 26 bones, 33 articulations, and 100 muscles, tendons, and ligaments. So if you were to get your foot, Jeff, and put your foot onto a piece of paper, and you draw around your foot with a marker pen, you'll find that the toe area of your foot is wider than your heel. Yeah. So the heel is quite narrow compared to the toe area, right? That's narrow. This is wide, <laughs> right? Um, okay. Yeah. So we understand that. Now, if you were to get most modern footwear for aesthetics, it's more narrow in the toe box than it is in the heel. That's the first way of just understanding it. So to expose your feet means that anatomically you're addressing it, right? You're just allowing the physiology to understand its role. You're allowing the foot to be its foundation that it needs to be for all those joint actions we discussed earlier to form and function. Um, for me, however, it's been something more, it's been something much more profound than that. You know, I've managed to what's seen as socially extreme, but, would have at some stage been normalized, right? Just running around barefoot or being barefoot. Um, yeah, I, I did the lands in John O'Groats, that was like 30 miles a day um, for 30 consecutive days. But what, what came through that is this understanding that we're not really designed to move around on these completely linear flat surfaces, right? That are stiff and rigid. So what can happen is when we do firstly start to look at maybe switching to barefoot or being more barefoot. <clears throat> if you've been wearing cushioning underneath your foot, your foot can become quite stiff. So if you were to think of this study, if you were to jump up and down on a really hard surface, um, what would give? Would it be Jeff or the hard surface? So Jeff has to give, right? Because the hard surface is hard, right? If you jump up and down on something that's really compliant and soft, the compliance surface gives, so we become more stiff. So there's this understanding of compliance and stiffness within these two models. So if we've only ever worn thick rubberized footwear um, that's narrow in the toe box, what we start to do is stiffen and make a rigid foot in that shape. So the human foot suddenly looks like a shoe shape rather than a foot shape. Yeah, it's quite narrow in the toe box all of a sudden. But it also stiffens and becomes quite rigid. So suddenly when Jeff wants to walk over a stony path or even a muddled, muddy trail that has rocks or wood um, roots, because sometimes I hear, yeah, but we're not designed to move, run around on hard surfaces. Well, try trail running because we would have all been doing that at some stage, right? There's rocks and there's, um, there's root systems and there's... Um, stony paths and then there's mud and there's hard impacted mud and there's soggy mud and there's grass it's all different terrains and to my sophisticated movement brain it has all the ability to recalibrate as it goes over that stuff so imagine the neuroplasticity and the neuromuscular efforts that are coming through that but if um i've created a stiff rigid foot and i go over those surfaces i haven't learned to recalibrate over those surfaces so I can suddenly be the hard hitting hard, you know? And that's sometimes where we have that 
oh my god moment it seems so socially extreme to even think of moving over a hard surface it's because you haven't got to a point where you've rewilded the feet in the first place to be able to interact over those over that terrain so there's a period of time it takes that transition but the reason it's important to get there is because of this amazing ability that we have to move over that terrain and what that would mean to that neuroplasticity and that neuromuscular system. Whereas if you only ever move around over hard surfaces or compliant surfaces or the root system or the rocks with that same rubber, you only ever get the same input. Um, but you also start to create a stiff, rigid foot within the shape that you're moving over that terrain in. You know, I think that's where it's where it's at. And you don't have to go mm. running 900 miles barefoot or go climbing mountains barefoot. But I think the key is really <laughs> just to try and get to the understanding that there's a natural shape to a foot. And through that natural foot, we can receive so much, you know, that's, that's the point. Well, I, I also assume that this narrowed foot um, probably lacks um, the same balance uh, capabilities than a kind of naturally formed wider foot. And if you kind of think about uh, balance issues, especially as people get older, um, yeah. you know, you hear about people in their 70s and 80s, you know, they lose their balance and they fall and they break a hip and that can kind of precipitate sort of a lot of negative, you know, downward spiral. So this, uh, I got to imagine that ha opening that foot has got to yeah. increase one's ability to maintain balance, right? I've put one study in there that's um, um, Professor Dort from the University of Liverpool, and they put participants through a program where they um, were wearing Vivo barefoot shoes. So Vivo barefoot shoes are wide in the toe box. They're zero drop. They're around three, four millimeters. So you still get all the sensory information. And the participants wore them for six months and they noticed a 60% increase in foot strength, 60% increase. Mm. And then within the elderly, there was a 40% increase in balance. So that's within a very short window of time. So firstly, we should be questioning, you know, where has the billions of dollars in research gone? If just returning to a barefoot shoe or being barefoot in, could be the case, right? Would mean you'd increase your feet by 60 foot strength by 60 percent balance by 40 percent but also as parents you know um we with that science or understanding you'd have to have a very good reason to why you would put your kids in foot their footwear that would remove 60 percent of their strength and 40 percent of their balance because if we strip it right back and go back into that conversation about perhaps tapping into our unique potential of what that is, what our human potential is, how much potential has been lost by removing 60% of our foot strength and 40% of our balance and becoming divorced from those senses. But also from the, then the floor studies of Finland and the school, what's been lost through microbiome, what's been lost through the intestinal microbiome, skin microbiome and the T cells. So it's really quite profound if you start to unpack it that way of just going back to being barefoot and barefoot over a terrain and what we are divorced from, you know, as the sensory bi biome experience, you know? Yeah. Well, this, it just, again, feeds this overall overarching narrative that 
you know, we continue to try to make life more comfortable and more convenient. So we do have these, you know, big padded shoes because it thinks we think, oh, that's going to make life more comfortable. Or, you know, for example, we have on-demand, you know, entertainment uh, available at our fingertips at all times. Um, but now we know that overexposure to light, particularly blue light, which exists within this particular spectrum of about 400 to 500 nanometers, yeah. um, is contributing to mass insomnia. So all of these kind of cultural um, uh, convenient, convenience-oriented inventions and innovations are really maladaptive and they're outpacing what we are evolved to be. So there is a very specific mechanism in the human body, for example, that evolved over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, for example, to get blue light in the morning at the right time to set our circadian clock. So I know you talk a lot about sleep and light. Can you just pull on that thread uh, a tiny bit? Yeah, there's um, well, I call it the eight-hour myth in the book, right? Because there's mm-hmm. lot, there's so many sleep studies, but they're mainly laboratory studies, aren't they? We look at you know sleep in a laboratory setup, and you know these are the triggers, and if we don't get this number of hours, then we suffer a sleep debt, and through that sleep debt there's um, the symptoms can be obesity, diabetes, and and so on. And then you look at um, indigenous cultures, and there's one study that they're looking at three independent tribes in three different geographic locations, right? And there's something that had me scratching my beard because it was like, well, no one in these studies is sleeping for eight hours, right? They're asleep for 5.7 to 7.1 hours, and then something really even more confusing was when they broke away and just studied the Hadza for like 220 hours, 33 members of the Hadza, and they, they own, they're only ever asleep together for 18 minutes. And they're all doing this. They wake and they sleep and they wake and they sleep, which is the sleep-wake cycle, right? So they're doing that throughout the night, which means they only get this 5.7 to 7.1 hours. So why, what, so why, there, why isn't there obesity? Why isn't there diabetes? Of course, there's other lifestyle factors, but if we're led to believe that's the trigger, and then you start to unpack the studies around melatonin, and you see that melatonin's role within all those regulatory systems that would drive obesity and diabetes, right? So the digestive system alone is supported by melatonin, but there's also others. You know, there's like it's um anti-inflammatory antioxidants there's there's so much within it but Mm -hmm. there's also cancer there's diabetes there's obesity and when you look at well what's happening with melatonin well what's different between that landscape and this landscape well let's strip it back let's remove suddenly the housing the lighting the air pollution the noise pollution the and let's strip it all back. And what do we have, right? Okay, we're exposed to the elements. So the temperature again, thermogenesis, went back to a conversation about room temperature. All of that shifts. So when you start to look at what does it look like for the Hadza, for instance, who are in these bands of, say, 33 members that have been studied, they're around a fire in the evening, right? 
and around the fire there's um the fire has to keep going because otherwise the fire goes out well, what am i going to use right so they keep a fire going so of course they have to get up throughout the night it's also can be hostile environments so we can't all be asleep for eight hours because we wouldn't all be here today if we all slept for eight hours right we would have probably been wiped out long ago right so they're sleep waking um there's romance there's comedy there's imparted wisdom around that fire right sun goes down it gets cooler lighting changes the only spectrums of light are now it's the moonlight the starlight and the firelight so that we call biological darkness they don't have the ability to go ding ding and put sunrise at sunset right it doesn't exist right so we know that temperature is a factor we know that air quality is different and we know what the information they're absorbing is different at night that what do we have that's different okay so um the air quality is different maybe full of impurities right um we we have this abundance of light around us the whole time which will suppress melatonin so the studies show anywhere between 60 and 600 lux really will suppress melatonin. So then there's a whole cascade then of hormonal imbalances will come out through that. So we know digestion will be affected. So we're not really in the middle of a sleep debt. It's basically, it's this environmental problem that we have going on within the sleep habitat that's driving certain habits. Um, and we also have something like this, you know, and this is now, yeah. well, it used to be the television. So the television became our hads of fire, right? In everyone's living room. So we'd stare into that, which would also be emitting blue light and green spectrums of light, suppressing melatonin. And we'd also be receiving um, what might be the news at 10 or horror movies or um, cr some kind of crime, whatever it is. And now we have this, which now has normalized um, emotional bullying, social bullying, whatever it is, right? Suddenly it's okay to behave you know, to one another in a certain way. Um, it's not necessarily about bringing around positive social change. It can be if we're in the right hands, right? But also what information are we absorbing? So this is like having your fire in your hands, but it's not biological darkness anymore. And it's not associated with... Um, the fire it's now associated with turning the sunrise on at sunset so it has these potent blue spectrums of light that will inhibit melatonin which then has again this whole cascade so it's it's a deep one man and it you know yeah. it's very deep when it's you understand it because it's not about the length of sleep as it's as it's being suggested it's really about what's in that environment that is the saboteur of all of that, you know? Uh, and if you look at melatonin, for me, it's like this, I'm calling it like the super hormone. It's like way beyond what we, what we thought was just a pill that you pop to deal with jet lag, you know? Yeah. Well, there's serum melatonin that is, you know, created through basically these ganglion receptors in the inferior yeah. part of your retinas that then signal the suprachiasmic nucleus that sends nucleus, a, yeah. a, 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 new, a note to the pineal gland to yeah. essentially produce or not or don't produce uh melatonin at certain times of the day but i did a uh, interview recently with a brilliant doctor a guy named dr roger schwelt who talks about melatonin um being biosynthesized at the mitochondrial level yeah, yeah. as yeah, an yeah. antioxidant 
as essentially the primary antioxidant, even as an antecedent to glutathione, mopping up, you know, the free radicals that are being created as a direct product of of cellular respiration of, of energy production. And, you know, essentially melatonin is, is, dealing with our oxidative stress, which is upstream yep. from all of these chronic disease. So it's not just a sleep deal. Um, and then, of course, now, as you are pointing out, it has a lot to do with these hormones like ghrelin and leptin, leptin that, yeah. are, um, that are, uh, uh, you know, regulating or, or governing satiety or, or hunger. So it's, it is all interconnected there. I think the other fascinating thing about the fire is in human evolution is that these intrinsic ganglion receptor cells, which are these um, cells in the inferior of the retina that are looking at blue light in the morning, they're in the bottom part of the retina. So when the fire is down here below us, you know, the, the superior part of the retina doesn't actually register that but it's also a whole different quality of light the infrared it's more on the infrared the side yeah. yeah so i mean it's just like we are these just brilliantly designed organisms but what we're doing is we're we're mucking with it because we're outpacing our evolution with all yeah. of these you know cultural innovations so you know we're taking in like you say too much blue light at the wrong times Um, And I think, you know, as we get more knowledgeable about ourselves as nature, then, you know, a lot of these praxis become just so clear. And um, and And then look look where we could be, Jeff. Do you know what I mean? That's what I mean. It's it's not to demonize it, right? Or even to ridicule it. It's kind of thinking, well, this is where we're at. And if we just understood these ancestral praxis that have, 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 have got us here today, right? That's the point, isn't it? It's like, well, we were thriving to be able to get to where we are. That's the point, right? You know. Yeah. And if we could just yeah. tune in, just reconnect, where where could we where could we be now, right? You know. Well, it's funny that we keep discovering these new trends: <laughs> yoga, mindfulness, the paleo yeah. diet, or whatever. Fasting, as if fasting is the newest thing that anyone's ever come up with. But of course, you know, Jesus, the Buddha, Muhammad, you know, everybody, everybody was fasting. Um, and um, so, you know, maybe as a good way to bookend, let's talk a little bit about um, diet, because yeah. I often say, if there are two perennial questions that humanity is striving to answer, it's why are we here and what the hell should we put in our mouths? Um, and you feature a fascinating in- infographic of sorts in the book, tracing the human diet uh, through the phylogenetic tree going back, you know, millions of years and showing how our diet has uh, evolved with us. Um, but again, in the last hundred years, things have really, really changed. Um, and again, our culture yeah. has outpaced our evolution. So can you, you know, spend a, a moment talking about diet, what we need to rediscover and some basic just principles or basic rules 
uh, for diet because there's just so much controversy and, and disagreement about it. Well, I think trends is, is the language that you were mentioning earlier. I think it's, it's understanding that we need to get to a point where <clears throat> this is where an individual conversation can come in, right? Because again, the most amazing trend might come in and the most amazing understanding of food might come in and food is thy medicine. But again, if Jeff's digestion isn't where it should be, then we can forget that, you know? So really it's about, I think rewilding the gut really is the first kind of part of that conversation. And then looking at, well, what's, you know, how do we rewild the palate and the plate? So firstly, it's to get away from the highly addictive, highly palatable foods, you know? And so, well, then we have to get away from the stresses that perhaps we're having to use those foods as a pacifier for the stress. Yeah. Because yeah, right. that can be in there. Then even that conversation around lighting could be in there because again, those highly palatable foods are coming in the evening because I haven't managed to suppress my digestion through having melatonin present. Um, then there's understanding the phylogenic tree as you've alluded to in, in that table I put in. So there's this conversation around, well, at, at some stage, if we understand evolution, there was a primate foundation. And if we look at chimpanzee and bonobo of today, it's like 95% plant-based, 5% will be coming through animal protein, insects, termites, eggs. And that's a high fiber diet, let's say, right? Then if you think there's this hominin phase where we become like these scavenging primates at some stage, you know, with that divergence of quadrupedal and bipedal apes around 6 million years ago, um, then perhaps there was more scavenging, which would have been like tendons, ligaments, marrow, but also this understanding of the what would have been a plant-based spectrum um, and then supported by whatever's available. And then as we move more into what would have been say a hunter-gatherer phase of say 400, 200,000 years ago, what if we want to call that? And depending on geographic location, right? We might be looking at say a 30-70 ratio of 30% animal fats, proteins versus 70% what might be plant-based frugivorous, um, herbivorous frugivorous traits like the primate again. Um, and then we move into farming, say of 10,000 years ago, right? And what that meant, and that's already this, there were, depending on geographic location, of course, it might be 6,000 in some areas, right? But then you've got this cusp of hunter-gatherer, horticulturalist, agricultural kind of phase, yeah? And then as we start to then start to, get, to reduce those thousands of years of farming, it becomes more monocrops, already the biodiversity of that palate that diet that digestive system what it's been experienced or exposed to would change right um and then we start to bring in what what i put as the zoo diet like this the zoo foods that have come in which then are manipulated right um salts fats um mineral imbalances that have come in and a complete shift in what would be fiber complete shift in what might be healthy fats or what was wild at one stage was now perhaps antibiotic fed or is on a diet that doesn't support even the animal that you might be consuming. And that's not even to think of the condition or the, um, the abuse the animal might be facing. You know, there's a very different phase between what might have happened 200,000 years ago, or if we look at 
indigenous cultures, there's a respect for the animal kingdom because it's the plants, the rocks and the animals, and we're part of that system. It's That's biodiversity again, our independent role in the interdependence of all things, like the beginning of the conversation. So it's even the respect that is due. And some cultures even had ceremonies for the master species before they did the human, right? So they'd have ceremonies for the bear, the bison, whatever it was, right? Compared to where we're at today, right? So I think even with that, understanding that as a template. So my son, for instance, was born, um, so he's now approaching three. I'm 47, so let's go, let's call it 45 years. So in 45 years, just by going on that, the evolutionary model of that, what did that look like 45 years ago and what's normalized today? So imagine the degradation that's a degraded soil that's occurred within that period of time of monocropping or pesticides, how that's completely shifted in the soil. So what's been grown in his food today, how deficient that is compared to what it would have been for me at his age, you know? Yeah, and then what's yeah. been manipulated in the laboratory foods compared to what was present when I was that age growing up, you know, and how quickly that's shifting, you know, from what's now factory foods compared to what is real, real food that is, again, we're in tune with, that we know we can absorb, perhaps, but hasn't had to have um, support or we don't have to supplement, you know what is that supplementation and why is it present and why is it there? What are we missing? And so we could say that, you know, um, I think it's like four to 5% of the mammals on the planet are wild. The rest are zoo farmed or caged. Right. Um, and that's just talking about that diversity, but what's the diversity beneath the soil? What's the diversity in what we're consuming? And I, and I think going on that evolutionary model is to, try and look at yourself as the primate, the hunter-gatherer period. And of course, mix farming in, but try and think of the cusp between agricultural hunter-gatherer rather than at the point where it was strict monocropping that, yeah, we suddenly became slaves to the land in that sense, you know? Yeah. And, and, and also... I mean, I think, her. Yes. yes. And then right. I think also removing the the stress from it. So I, I think labeling or giving yourself a label like, Oh, I'm paleo or I'm vegan or I'm this. And, and you know, again, we're not talking diets here. I know people in the paleo community. I know people in the vegan community. That's a lifestyle we're talking about. We're not just talking about diets here. So they're lifestyles for a start, but there we're also giving ourselves labels and, and it doesn't allow us any freedom there. And I know some people that on in, in very different realms could be keto, some that have gone strict carnivore diet, some that are strict plant-based, some that are strict vegan. But again, it doesn't give us much freedom and suddenly we can find ourselves in a position of stress over keeping to a specific label that we've given ourselves, right? You know, and maybe not tuning in and listening to what our fun, what our needs might be in that moment of time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think being neurotic or, or fundamentalist uh, about yeah. diet um, and even categorizing it as diet is, yeah. is, is not a beneficial project. 
uh, because diets generally have an end point and they often fail, right? Yeah. So it's really about like, how am I going to live my life? And I think this goes back to a central core message of your work, which is really just understanding ourselves as nature, as evolving and emerging all the time, and as a product of incredible intelligence. Mm. So for example, storing fat was once a very adaptive process. You know, for example, like if we were living on the savanna and Tony and Jeff uncovered a, a fig tree um, in, or, you know, or a fruit tree in a time of harvest in the fall, well, we might very well completely binge all of that fruit. And that fructose would signal the body along the uric acid pathway, for example, to become a little bit insulin resistant and store fat because we knew there was scarcity ahead. You know, we knew the winter was coming. So storing fat is actually adaptive. Now we think of it now in today's day and age, where 45% of Americans at least are obese. And it's a precursor and concomitant with all these chronic disease as something very negative and detrimental. And it is. But the process of storing fat was actually once a very adaptive evolutionary yeah. process. But now with access of every kind of food in and out of season, you know, then that what was adaptive has now become completely maladaptive. So in a way, it's like when we learn about this thing here <laughs> as, as, uh, as nature with grounded in a certain kind of intelligence, then, okay, certain light bulbs begin to go off. And you're like, okay, what do I got to do here? I've got to feed the gut. So look at you know the history that you just gave across um, around nutrition over millions of years, we've typically had a very high fiber diet. And so fiber is essentially a prebiotic. So that feeds the live bacteria, the 39 trillion, uh, you know, bacteria um, and microorganisms in our gut to create short chain fatty acids and metabolites and postbiotics that upregulate virtually every system in the body. So feed the gut with fiber, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of fiber comes from nuts, avocados, and, you know, basically plant-focused diet. Um, so uh, that's kind of one rule that I try to hover over. And then the other is like protect the liver. So, mm. you know, sugar, overconsumption of glucose or fructose, that's going to go right to the liver create fatty liver, which is then going to create insulin resistance and create metabolic, metabolic dysfunction, which is kind of upstream from all of these chronic diseases now. So for me, that's one of the rules I try to think about and then nourish the brain, you know, um, and, and not, and think of it more that way instead of, um, I'm a vegan or I'm a vegetarian mm. or I'm a, you know, I'm a keto guy or, or whatever. Um, it's really actually kind of understanding the mechanisms of physiology and how they've evolved. And then, you know, what fits in with that? Um, yeah, understanding your system to understand the food system. You know, it's kind of yeah 
tuning in yeah. again i think yeah the labeling means we start tuning out i feel you know and it's really again what what is it what is it to become that self-medicating species again that understood what it needed you know mm, yeah you know and that yeah, means getting well, away from the zoo foods because they're another form of self-medicating but they're deliberately set up for those they're they're highly palatable foods again right yeah, yeah. well when Lots you when you read it, about right? yeah when when you read about how big food uh spends all of this time and money researching you know bliss points you know these combinations of yeah. you know fats and sugars and salts that are just going to trigger neurological addiction so you know yeah. there's like i was reading this uh study that was reported by um neuroscientist named andrew huberman um, about these neuropods in our gut, um, mm. basically our in, enteric brain um, that registers sugar, for example, and sends a signal kind of up axons, axons through the vagus nerve to our brain just to essentially release like kind of almost like a, a dopamine kind of response of like, yeah, yeah eat more of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so this is what we're up against. <laughs> it becomes like heroin to our biological systems, right? It's like just incredible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tony, um, man, it's been great to uh, spend some time with you and to get to know your work and, um, and, and to, to discover new praxis that, you know, I can apply to my own life. And I know if I can apply, um, what I'm learning from you, I know that there's millions of other people that can do that too. And, and you're just touching so many people. And I would say to be more human, but also to be more humane. Yeah. Um, because you have a, uh, you have a grace to you that is unique. I mean, not a lot of people can toggle between being an ultra endurance celebrity athlete, but then also have the focus and the patience and the time and the persistence to also be a teacher and a communicator and a foster of community. Um, so somehow you've managed to create a, an elixir of both. So good, good on you. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, man. To be continued. I, I look forward to, uh, to sitting around and um, you know breaking bread together around a table. Um, I yeah, hope we man. can do that sometime soon. I hope so. That'd be lovely. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Tony Riddle. Visit him at TonyRiddle.com and be sure to check out his new book, Be More Human, to get his game-changing guide to boosting your mental and physical health by reconnecting with the way we as humans were supposed to live, eat, sleep, breathe, and move. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes about ads. So 
If you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with comments, criticisms, suggestions, etc. at jeffk at onecommune.com. And lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Alexa Pepperman, Ruby Foster, Emma Frett, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>